0: Audubilla Shaytan Rahim. alaikum wa barakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another edition of the Drive Time Show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Today is Tuesday, the twelfth of December, twenty twenty three, and we're going to be talking about some very interesting topics as we as we usually do. We're going to be talking about child marriage in the first hour. And the the sort of the sort of need for to 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 you know in a way address this issue, and how do we counter this issue as well? This is an issue which is, which has been going on for for I wouldn't say decades; I would say centuries, hundreds of centuries maybe. And uh, this is this is a practice within within some some uh, so, some nations, some traditions, some countries. Uh, may may feel as if this is part and parcel of uh, of their of their upbringing some nations and some people some tribes they might think or some people they might think that this is part of their part of their livelihood and this is what they've always been seeing and this is something which they will continue as well but this is an interesting topic that we're going to be talking about and a few guests that we're going to be speaking to as well but of course we're going to be talking about what Islam says in regards to this, because this is the voice of Islam. We're going to give the Islamic touch in regards to this uh, this particular topic. A lot of people question Islam in regards to child marriages as well. They have weird and uh, sort of nonsensical uh, I- issues, and the way they think about the teachings of Islam are quite ignorant. You listen to people who are, who talk about Islam and you, you you can literally tell that they have nothing, they have no, they have literally zero knowledge about the teachings of Islam as well, and yet they still try to raise their voices against Islam. A clear example yesterday, um, what happened? Uh, you know, one of those presenters, or oh, so-called, you know, these these presenters who 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 th- who think in their own terms that they are the champions. Of freedom of speech, they are the they are the champions, so-called inverted commas, obviously, of uh, of uh, of you know helping out those people who are oppressed, um, you know, on the on their talk shows or or whatever, uncensored, whatever it is. But of course, you might know who I'm talking about. The thing is, is that those people, what do they know about Islam? What do they actually know about Islam? Do they? Actually research Islam, the, the the traditions of Islam, the teachings of Islam, the practice of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Did, do they do that? It doesn't look like it. Because if they had, if they did, and if they will, then their they're, they're thinking, they're, the way that they think about Islam, the way that they talk about Islam would be completely the opposite. That's something that we're going to be talking about during the course of the show, and uh, just to give just to give you guys a a a bit of uh, some flavour, what we're going to be talking about a little bit later on. We're going to be talking about how we can be building a platform for peaceful negotiations. That's something that we want to talk about towards the latter part of the show. Neutrality, and we're going to be talking to guests. We know that the, the the ongoing war, conflict, war, whatever you want to call it, is. Is ongoing as i as i just mentioned and what are the things that we can do we can implement in terms of how we can make sure that there is equality how can we make sure that there is justice how can we make sure that those people who are oppressed they can not be oppressed there are people who make how can we make sure that governments are actually standing up for those people who are oppressed women children elderly even men as well. Not all men are going out there and waging war. A lot, a majority of the population, is actually, uh, is, is is innocent, is trying to get about with their daily with their daily lives. But more of that a little bit later on. Zero zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven is the number for you to call if you want to contribute to the show. If you want to call me, if you want to call us and tell us anything that you that you want to you know want to voice your opinion in in regards to in regards to this as well these two topics that are going to be quite uh, quite interesting um, but of course of course um, just to begin with in over 100 you know 100 different countries child marriage uh, continues to pose a significant and immediate threat to 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 human lives And when it comes to humanitarian crisis, humanitarian rights, humanitarian lives, the well-being of of, of children, adolescences, particularly girls in this regard, um, how can we challenge that? How can we talk about this and how can we raise awareness in regards to this as well? Obviously, when it comes to the teachings of Islam, which we will delve into a little bit um, more detail a little bit later on, but just to give... You guys, from the very outset, what does Islam say in regards to marriage in general? Islam says that both the the, per, the, the you know the, the 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 bride and the groom, both of them, the boy and the girl, they should consent. They should give their consent. They should be happy. They should be willing to 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 get married to the to to the other to the other person. If one of them is not happy, if one of them is feeling as if they are feeling they are being forced. Like I said, there's no coercion in Islam. There's no sort of uh, compulsion in Islam. If, if if somebody is forcing their son or their daughter to get married to so-and-so and that and your daughter or your son does not want to get married to so-and-so, that is against the teachings of Islam. Like I said, we're going to be talking about a little bit more about this a little bit later on and during the course of the show as well. But still, what does... What can the, you know, d- despite the existence of national laws and the international agreements as well, how can that help prevent unwanted, unwanted marriages as well? But in today's day and age, with so-called democracy, with so-called, um, you know, these Western, Western nations, advanced nations who have veto power, who can do what they want, a, 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 an international law, an international court, of justice may say something but these guys say no you know what no we're not gonna live up to your standard we're not going to follow whatever you tell us to do oh the other nations the smaller nations they can do whatever they want to because they don't have that power that we do and we have that power we have that veto power we don't have to listen to you guys so that is something that is quite interesting and a lot of people would say a lot of people would actually argue that what is the point of these international powers then? You know, what's the point of them? Yes, they they, they might do their bit, but in the long run, if, if if nations can can veto them, then then what? But let's talk about a little bit more th- about that later on. Let's speak to our first guest for uh, who's on the line right now, Nana Otu Oyorte, who is an MBE and is uh, the executive director at Forward UK, and she worked at the International Planned Parenthood Federation. Um uh, We, you know, we she investigated child marriage and also poverty. and one of you know, some interesting, um uh, a very interesting personality. Let's speak to her right now. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show, Nana.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm really excited to uh, come on the show and to talk about the issue of uh, child marriage.
0: As uh, as we are as well, it's, it's a very pressing issue as well. And given yes. uh, Forward's mission to to end violence against women and girls, especially. Could you just, from the very outset, elaborate on the specific strategies and initiatives that the organization employs to to sort of address this issue, to tackle this issue as well? Um, uh, Yeah,
1: I think for us at Forward, one of the most important uh, elements in which we use to tackle child marriage is the issue of partnership. Uh, Because we work in UK, uh, we work with partners, partnerships is very strategic and partnerships with different organizations, including uh, grassroots and community level organizations. So one is the partnership and ensure that the partners also understand the issues. But most importantly, it's about developing the evidence having evidence on how girls are affected by child marriage how women's lives are impacted by child marriage and to use that evidence to uh, use for our advocacy work so yeah. advocacy uh, without evidence is very very uh, suspect so it's important to get lived reality and use the lived reality to really talk about the impact Working with the media is also a very strategic uh, uh, way in which we use. But I think for us also, it's very much about enabling uh, women and young women particularly to be champions for change. So the strategic element is about equipping them with skills, with knowledge, and with how to engage in order to reach out to those who are at risk within their communities.
2: Mm-hmm. That's a good very yeah. important
1: bit that I... Often want to stress is the issue of working with religious leaders because hmm. religious leaders and traditional leaders hold the power when it comes to the community level, and it's a really important that strategically we engage with them and engage with, even you know however much policies are in place, uh, without the religious leaders, without the community leaders and families being uh, able to uh, see this as a form of abuse. And a form of violation of rights, it really continues to be perpetuated.
0: I think it's very good that you mentioned that as well. To to really get into uh, the people's mindset as so well, you need to talk to the religious leaders as well because they have a lot of influence when it comes to when it comes to the societies uh, and 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 the public. Now, it's good that you mentioned that because uh, I want to talk about when I want to ask you, how does forwards? sort of work against the child marriage how it sort of you know when it when it impacts communities and uh, when it when it all those people that are involved in this how does your sort of charity and your organization particularly when it comes to empowering young girls and Mm -hmm. alterating societies sometimes Mm -hmm. it's uh it's that it's that perception isn't it it's it's those maybe those societies think think it's a it's a normal thing but yeah. how do you sort of challenge those uh, those norms and say you know if if the girl is not ready if she is not even consenting to it then then it's you know mm-hmm. shouldn't be allowed
1: i think they there are two prongs of this approach and one of the most important is actually supporting those who are affected Mm. And uh, girls who are affected in terms of, you know, the impact on their lives, their health and well-being, but also uh, giving them the skills to be able to look after a child. A very good example is a a girl that we actually worked to in in, in, uh, Tanzania and this girl was 14 and we had brought them together to come and work on a, a, a program to support their lives. And the girl came and she had left her baby so shortly afterwards the mother brought the baby and the only thing she could do when i asked her was that i forgot i mean this is a girl who is wanting to play with her paymates and things she doesn't see the baby as important so how do we equip these girls who have been affected adversely to be able to support their uh, their their children and then there is the element of prevention and the element of prevention is the biggest uh, uh, thing the biggest thing about prevention is actually engaging with. All key stakeholders in schools teachers should be aware of this and be able to stop girls Mm -hmm. who are being taken away from uh, uh, schools to get married So have those kind of conversations have the kind of sessions in schools working with school clubs is a very good way of enabling girls to have a safe space to be able to talk about child marriage to be able to talk about when they are at risk but also to be able to identify people who they can trust within their communities that they can go to. Because at the end of the day, sometimes the families would arrange this without the girl's knowledge. But if the girl has knowledge about it, who does she go to? Who can she trust? Can Mm. she go to her religious leader? Can she go to her traditional leader? Who does she go to? Is she an aunt who is around or is it an uncle? How do they get to these people? So it's about equipping these girls to be able to understand who they can go to. If it's a school teacher, how can they tell the school teacher that this is what is happening to me so that the teacher can also be proactive? So, training of critical uh, stakeholders around this girl to give her that kind of protective environment is really important. Yeah. Most importantly for us, too, is also creating networks so that the girls can be comfortable in sharing. A lot of these girls are isolated and do not have any. critical friends that they can talk to how do we break the cycle and get these girls into spaces but I think for us one of the particularly important things around empowering these girls is to provide them with leadership skills to provide them with economic empowerment skills so right from even ages about 10 years getting these girls to be able to understand that you can be independent how can you be economically independent identify a way in which girls are so economically uh, not dependent on others so that they would then be at risk of, you know, she's not earning an income, so the family would want her to get married as a survival mechanism. So there are different ways in which we can work with these girls. If girls, we have a program in Sierra Leone, it's called Each One Reach One, you know, and working with our Sierra Leone partner, Girl to Girl Empowerment, is about empowering girls and enabling girls to be able to reach out to other girls, so that each one who has the knowledge is able to reach another person who may be at risk to support her.
0: Hmm. I mean, to talk, to tackling uh, grassroots levels, just like you mentioned, and then obviously other organisations. or well, that is a very beneficial way in which uh, you know you can tackle this and th- these problems and these issues as well, which uh, which come to arise. Um When it comes to uh, you know. T- different challenges, obviously with different uh, uh, people or different nations, they have their own traditions, they have their own stories as well and their backgrounds. Can you sort of, with our listeners, share any sort of specific stories or success stories of notable impact from uh, from your charities, your organizations, uh, your, your efforts? You know, I
1: think one this? of the things I would say has been a success for us in our work in Tanzania has actually been the fact that the work with our partner, which was Children's Dignity Forum, Mm -hmm. has been able to raise the profile of child marriage within the country And what has been strategic is that they've come together to set up a national partnership, which is Tanzanian and Child Marriage Network. The network has now more than 60 partners, and as a result of that kind of partnership, uh, the organizations are working together because once we know that child marriage happens to more people in a community, Working strategically and collaboratively has been the best way forward. So this has helped to raise awareness. In fact, what has also happened is that they collectively work together to challenge the uh, government when it comes to the age of marriage. And at the moment, they continue to do advocacy, even though the government has not accepted to change the uh, age of marriage. They were successful in, in the courts. And now there's left to the government to change the law. In Tanzania, you can marry a girl at 14 years with parental consent. Technically, mm-hmm. that is not acceptable. Uh, but at the same time, you the country has a law that if a girl is raped at 18 years, it's statutory rape. Now, if you're married at 14, and it's not called statutory rape mm-hmm. um, because you are married, technically, there's these kind of dual laws, which yeah. makes it impossible to protect. So there is need to address the... Uh, uh, uh the challenges and the complexities within the laws yeah. um the other thing which has been really good and we are seeing, is in uh, girls networks the girls themselves are now speaking out and talking about girls who are going to be married and as a result of that some of the girls are now able to run away to safe homes in uh tanzania particularly where um child marriage is very much linked to female uh, genital mutilation you see that mm. um Once the girls go through the practice, they are ready for marriage. So you have to really look at other related uh, uh, elements that actually put girls at risk of uh, uh, child marriage. Because Mm -hmm. once you go through FGM, you're considered an adult, you're considered ready for marriage, you're considered you've passed the age of puberty, so you should be married. So we have to look at related issues and you find that poverty is a really big factor when it comes to uh, marrying girls early so how do we address these issues within communities and how do we ensure that uh, families themselves have some kind of support so that they don't see these girls as a Uh, recourse to uh, uh, survival within the the families. So yes, there we're seeing gradually a a shift, and you can see that in quite a number of countries there are now laws that are coming into place. The challenge is the uh, disconnect between the laws and the implementation on the ground. Hmm. And we, we need to explore how we can work together. And that is the element, I mean, at the global level, We've seen uh, organizations like Girls Not Brides working together at different levels. We've seen national organizations coming together. The more advocacy we use, the more we raise the profile, the more we actually show the detrimental impact of child marriage on the community and on the nation at, at large. If these are the ways in which we can really bring, uh, 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 I think, pressure to bear on governments, pressure to bear on communities, and to make sure that these girls are protected. If we value children, then we cannot have children having children. This is totally not acceptable. You know, we are in the era of so-called human rights, and at the same time, there's so many violations which yeah. are actually accepted by the communities.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, uh, Nana, you've uh, you know you've done TED talks uh, about women's rights and <laughs> FGM, uh, FGM, like you mentioned before as well. And uh we, you know, one of the before that you were included in the London's most influential people in the evening. How did evenings. you do all this
1: research on me?
0: <laughs> we we do our research for our guests, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's good because it's good that you that you spoke about that and you know, you've done a lot of talking about this. Talking about its implementation I And mean, I know you said that we need to explore different ways to try and encourage this to be implemented because the laws may be there. Yeah. Even in the international level, the laws are there. But then, you know, you have these countries. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before we you know, we took you on, I spoke about this as well, that if they have veto power, then they can do what they want to. So it's about the implementation and yeah. looking forward. W- 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 what is forward's long term vision and strategy for addressing and sort of eliminate, eliminating child poverty, uh, child um, marriage?
1: I think for us, I have said uh, one of the the biggest ways we need to work out is collective action. And uh, a collective action and partnership and collaboration is really important at multiple levels. So at the community level, create the space for community organisations to have the capacity. And I think for us at Forward, it's about equipping community organisations to be able to have the skills have the resources, but also to be able to understand how to effectively work in programming. Because, for example, there's quite a lot of learning about what really works. Now, if mm. we know at a particular level, at the national level of what really works, and we're not really equipping the local organizations we are working with to understand how...
0: Yes, Nana, can you hear us? Uh, I think I think the line must have uh, must have dropped, but uh, but that's fine. I think what Nana was saying um, was was quite interesting and very much in line with, uh, with you know with uh, you know with with humanitarian uh, rights as well. When talking about the rights that women need to be given, the rights for 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 marriage, what is a particular age for, you know the right age for the women for the for the girl to get married? As also, well. Uh, well, thank you for for Nana to for coming on and speaking to us it is it's unfortunate that the line dropped as well but uh, maybe sometime in the future we can uh, we can hopefully get them get them again um we, we were talking about you know the to, talking about uh, young children getting married and uh, marriage when it comes to when it comes to islam it's a very sanctified and is a very you know it, it, it is a very pious act and when one is ready to get married and they give their consent that, yes, I want to get married. And this is the person that I want to get married to. And the other person also agrees. So when there's a mutual agreement and both of them are happy to get married, that is when the marriage should take place. Uh, we'll talk We'll talk about this uh, after, Rozo, isn't it?
2: Yes. Um, yeah. So I think Nana is back. Um, oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> thank you for yes, yes, uh, you yes, know, yes. joining us again. So, we we'll <laughs> luckily have you back now.
1: Yes. I, I just heard you talk about consent, and for me, consent is very problematic. Consent is really problematic. And uh, we have to really unpack what consent means. Mm. Um, if you've been brought up in a context, in a culture where consent means that you cannot say no to your parents consent means that you cannot speak back, consent means that you have to accept, then you're being told what to do does not really equate to consent.
0: Yeah, So the issues around
1: consent is really important and it's about equipping girls to really unpack and understand what it really means. If you do not have access to information, how are you going to consent effectively when you do not have access? How are you going to uh, consent when you do not have your independence and be able to see yourself as somebody who has rights in her own right. So we have a lot of issues, and this is where um, awareness raising, uh, equipping girls with skills, uh, it should start right from schools. It should start right from the families, enabling girls to actually be confident in talking, confident in speaking. And that's something that very often a lot of girls do not have the opportunities because you're brought up to within the social norms to be quiet, within the social norms to be acceptable, to accept what you're told and to really not talk back. Mm. So we have to unpack all these things that we have learned, learning and unlearning and making girls more confident and uh, to be able to uh, uh, really exercise their rights.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Nana, with that, (laughs) thank you you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) It's been a pleasure. And uh, Forward is always grateful to be able to share our work. So Absolutely. thank you very much, and hope all goes well for you today.
0: Thank Absolutely, you. thank you, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Have a, have a lovely day ahead. So that was Nana Otu Oyor- Oyorte who has uh, done a lot of work in regards to this as well. Uh, speak very, been very vocal in regards to this and speaking up for the rights of uh, of women. And it's right what she said as well that we need to understand what consent means. Yes, consent is a very is a powerful word, but it you know it means that you do have the right to say no yeah. if you if you if you <coughs> don't agree with uh, with a particular proposal right mm-hmm. you you know your parents might choose someone for you and they might think that this would be good for you but if you say that you know i, I don't consent to it i don't like this or i don't i don't want this one yeah then you know the the parents should uh, should understand that as well because if she if he is just saying yes and she is consenting in this way, mm-hmm. and uh in actuality she's not happy mm-hmm. then that is not true consent, is it that is basically she's just saying yes, just to get her parents to be happy mm-hmm. and she's just doing it just to make the the family the, you know to tie the bonds with the families and yeah. all of these things isn't it yeah, it's not actually for her
2: uh, that's true I mean I think yeah, that's quite sad when when someone when you're asking someone's consent um you should also ask that why are you you know agreeing with the uh, with the marriage right so the question right. is um why do you want to do this or uh, do you agree with this or that so as long as she in sense mm. fully or he understands whatever you know child marriage could happen from both sides mm. but most of the time with with the uh, with with girls young young very very young girls yes then of course if they understand the purpose of the marriage or the, if they understand who they are getting married to what their life ahead will be like. Yeah. Uh, then you know you can say that yes they have understood. They have understood. Yeah. And th- then you can call it as. Then a, you can call it a, a, a true consent. A true consent, consent. Exactly.
0: Yes. Exactly. In regards to the teachings of Islam, let's uh, speak to our next guest, Imam Adil, who is a missionary, to the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community from Dallas, United States of America. assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the show. You're welcome, Salam. to Thank
3: you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for for joining us. Um, Talking about Islam, how does Islam address the issue of child marriages? You know, of of course, when it comes to the teachings and the principles. And what steps are being taken to sort of actively discourage and uh, not just discourage, but eliminate, um, you know, forced marriages in the community? Right. So uh, I think one of
3: the interesting things is if we actually look at the purpose of marriages and of what purpose marriage serves within an Islamic framework, then um, in the long term, in an inadvertent way, it actually ends up eliminating the possibility of a, of a child marriage because the purpose of marriage is very hmm.
4: Ultimately,
3: the spiritual, moral, even physical development of both the man and the woman. For example, you see a very famous hadith and saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, uh, everybody knows it, which is that a man marries a woman for four reasons. Uh, one, her beauty, uh, or her rank, or her wealth, or her faith, and uh, he said that it is a faith that you should prefer. And you know these things—they can't be gauged when someone is a child. You don't even have the time to develop any of these things. In fact, uh, let alone your quality of your faith or your righteousness or your piety—they can't really come out when someone is is uh, is, is a child. Mm-hmm. So we believe our faith to be surgically created and and uh, laid out by God Almighty Himself. So how can you judge someone's righteousness or piety before they even go through adolescence, before they even go through maturity? So, you know, child marriage would be, you know, in a literal and figurative sense, an immature decision. in terms of uh, within the community, I think, again, um, in in an inner way, just the culture of our community, we have a stress on education, we have a stress on parenting, um, and these things in, in the long term don't allow something like this to happen because it would undercut... Some of the values that we wish to instill in the in the future generation and marriage. So, you know, it, not to make it sound restrictive, but there are responsibilities, there are duties in it. And when you're of a, you know, ma- when you go through maturity, when your mind is a bit more developed, then it's easier for you to balance those things instead of at a really young age when perhaps you know that that potential of yours could be
0: undercut. Absolutely, absolutely. Just to give uh, practical examples as well, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He, you know, he he addressed this issue about uh, about child child marriages as well, talking about the the age of the individuals, the maturity, the consent, the you know the well being of uh, you know of, of, of the children in the context of marriage as well. Tell us a little bit more in regards to this as well, please. So you know, what
3: uh, of course the the Prophet Muhammad is this, You know, he he is the one who is the transmitter of, of Islamic teachings. And uh, what we get from his teachings and his understandings, of course, is that one of the primary purposes of marriages is, for example, amongst many others, is that a outlet is given to the physical urges. And it's kind of presumed that uh, that is one of the uh, purposes. Not purpose, sorry. It's presumed that both the girl and boy man, woman, what have you, are at that level. Where they can then, you know, uh, have the ability to to uh, to carry out those urges, and that marriage is there to foster that safe uh, environment for uh, to act on uh, uh, on those urges. And again, it just wouldn't make sense because a child marriage wouldn't wouldn't allow something like uh, like that to happen. So I think you know he 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 taught this to his followers as well. Uh, instill that discipline as well. In fact, some people went a bit extreme in the sense that they didn't even want to uh, engage, you know, in any type of uh, physical activity because they just wanted to focus on worship. And he actually had to teach his companions that, you know, you have to get married. It's my practice. It's 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 what I do as well. Your wife and your spouses have have a right on you. So I think just him teaching his his companions that uh, you know this is a part of marriage, and then by extension we assume that that's something that's never part
2: of it if you have to be of a mature age. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that answer. Um, uh, you're an imam of the Ahmadi Muslim community as well. So from the uh, Ahmadi Muslim community uh, interpretation, uh, how does it, how does the, the community emphasize on the importance of ensuring the marriages uh, are based on uh, well-being and uh, maturity Of individuals involved, uh, particularly regarding uh, children?
3: I think, you know, within our community itself, our general culture of upbringing and the values that we are surrounded by in our mosques, in our Sunday classes, and what have you, uh, and of course the guidance and initiatives from the head of the movement, uh, these all combine to prevent something like this from happening without us needing to even have a targeted campaign to address this issue, which doesn't, you know, really exist. Uh, amongst us, For example, having a stress on education, like I mentioned, not for the sake of hoarding knowledge or having degrees to show off to the world, but to be of service to humanity through our knowledge. And this, again, will be undercut if we had something like child marriage. It would really diminish for this culture of education and intellectual development to be fostered. And, you know, we don't want to say that there are strings in marriage, but it would be difficult if someone from a very early, you know, child age was, was, uh, was married off. Another aspect I think would be a big stress that we lay on parenting and on fostering the home, which is an Islamic ideal, Um, and our very core belief that parenting is the primary means of developing the future generation. And, of course, Mm -hmm. that would be undercut if you lose your child during their most formative years, where, um, you know, without even them trying, they inherit habits, they inherit customs, they inherit lifestyles and principles from those they see every day more than anyone else and that is their parents. So, you know, it, it it's things such as these, it's is the general culture from which we are raised um, in our community, that uh, naturally they stop this problem of child marriage from occurring in the first place.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, there is a global mis- misconception um, that Islam or uh, perhaps maybe, uh, you know, other religions also allows uh, early marriages. Um, how does the Ahmadi Muslim community work to uh, counteract this um, perception? Um, and what is the understanding of Islamic teachings regarding marriage, especially concerning the age of uh, individuals involved?
3: So one part is, is, is of course, like, like I just mentioned, um, that we have uh, an Islamic culture internally as well that prevents and injustice from, like, this uh, happening that can help develop a person um, properly. And, of course, I you know, perhaps the biggest service that we give is, of course, spreading our values, spreading our teachings, because we believe that this is the best way for someone to actually live their lives. And so if the larger world is equipped with our understanding and the way that we look at the world and the way our worldview is, which is, you know, as believers in God Almighty, as believers in Islamic values, then, if we bring that to people, then it can help in curtailing and finishing off something like this that that, that might exist. So bringing our values and stresses um, on uh, education as well, which then we um, you know, manifest in our services and our different schools and, and uh, um, educational institutes that, that we have uh, around the world as well, or through any other type of educational services or health services as well, and just the general spreading of our teachings, enlightening people on what is most beneficial for the development of a human being, both mm-hmm. physically, morally, spiritually, as well, all these things together uh, together matter. So, you know, when we tell people that this is the best way to live your life, then we think that that is the best service that we're giving them. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you. Perfect. Um, thank you very much, Miamwadeel, uh, uh, for for your time and answering our questions. Uh, thank you very very much for joining us.
3: No problem,
2: sir. Thank you, God. Okay, JazakAllah, may Allah bless you too. So this was Imam Adil, um, a missionary, an imam from Dallas, USA.
0: And I think it's uh, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, now that now that we have listened to the teachings of Islam, mm-hmm. what some people say about the teachings of Islam, isn't it? They they raise their objections. They They raise their concerns. They say, oh, Islam teaches this. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, Islam is the one who... Who's apparently the champion of uh, of this as well. But no, that's that's not the case because like we just heard, the you know, the 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 Holy Prophet of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he made sure that, you know, the the that the faith is the most important thing that you look at when it comes to when it comes to marriage. Yeah. And how can your other things be be at its peak? Or how can they even be um, how can you even see those things? You know, when it comes to the beauty, when it comes to your wealth, when it comes to your your caste, you know, your family background. How can that even, you know, come out from a child? Obviously, yeah. that's not the case. Obviously, the child has to go through maturity, become mature, turn into, you know, a, a a a you know a woman or or a man. Exactly. And then all of these things they go through the they go through the adult life. They see all of these things. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, you know, then you can be, be the judge of that. Um, but obviously, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that the the most important thing that you should look at is faith. And yep. faith is the most, you know, if your faith is being, uh, you know, being compromised in in, 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 in sort of, uh, if you're being forced for a child marriage, then you should understand that this is against the teachings of Islam. Exactly. And this is what, this is literally one of the reasons why we are doing this show as well, just so yeah. that we can give out to the public mm-hmm. what the true picture of islam actually is right. and what it portrays exactly i mean um there's one thing i remember
2: that um reading the quran the quran actually speaks of the, uh, the the husband and wife to stay separate or in fact you know they're not bound to stay with the parents so it is actually encouraged in the holy quran for the uh, the children when they get married to stay separately in their own homes. So how would you expect, you know, the Holy Prophet has taught us this, that, you know, uh, when you get married, you have your own life, you have your own house, and you have to build up your house. So if a young um, girl is married off, right? Mm. The parents are, of course, they're, they're very concerned that, okay, so if they start living on their own, if if it's a child, how will she be able to, or how will he will be able to, you know, um, uh, what's it called, uh, you know, be uh, taking care of the whole house if she's ch- still a child? So of course, Islam is a a, a religion. It's very very a logical religion mm, that logical, actually teaches yeah. you, and the Holy Quran teaches you that, you know, when a a, a girl or a boy becomes an, and comes at an age when they are able and capable to live on their own and are mature enough that's when they should get married of course right
0: very very uh very practical as well isn't it exactly and uh when you you know listen to the teachings of islam and you actually you know um you you, you ponder over it yeah. you would think that yes it is logical just like you mentioned mm-hmm. yes it is very practical and it goes very much in hand with the law of nature mm-hmm. isn't it um, another thing which is very, very interesting as well is that the, what the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community said, mm-hmm. as Tahir may Allah have mercy on him. And he explained in a question answer session mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> that no marriage can be arranged and entered into without the consent of both man and woman. Mm-hmm. However, the woman needs a guardian or representative for the armament. And the the purpose is to safeguard her rights and to maintain her modesty islam allows both the man and the woman to see and talk to each other before the marriage with the with a chaperone present at these meetings as well mm-hmm. just so that you know there's no you know it's not it's not it is not free together mm-hmm. but obviously there needs to be a a, a, a guardian sort of in 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 a, in a mm-hmm. way as well now this is the teachings of islam and this is a very practical a very practical teaching. Islam doesn't just say that, you know, if if your parents suggest a a a proposal, give a proposal, it could be a good proposal. And it, Islam doesn't say that, you know, if your parents have said this, then you have to obey them 100%. You know, yeah. you don't have a say in it. Even if it's a good proposal. Even if it's a good proposal, yeah. you, you do have the right mm-hmm. to say, okay, that's fine. I will pray about, I'll pray to God about it. And uh, obviously... You know, you can talk to the person. You can see the person as well. It's not as if, you know, the first time that they're going to see the person they're going to marry is on the wedding day. (laughs) It's not like that. It's not like that. I mean, Um, that might happen in some cultures or it might still happen right now in this present day, in 2023, in some cultures as well. Mm -hmm. But that is the thing, isn't it? That is that those are cultural things. And the problem arises when culture and religion they they sort of they mix the people mix them Hmm. and that is when the problem occurs because the culture is or the traditions are for that particular region or for the for that particular people that nation or that people right yeah but the traditions in regards to the religious traditions the religious customs that's completely separate yeah when it's the same thing when it comes to the way you get married right so in our Pakistani, Indonesian, or maybe Bangladesh culture as well, we you know we have you know two three days for the marriage, mm-hmm. right? But in in Islamically, it is just the 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 when the when the girl leaves the house yeah. of the you know or her parents' house, enters into the the guy's house mm-hmm. and moves in with the, with the guy, yeah. And then the and then they and then the guy gives a sort of a fee, a, a, a meal, you know, a a meal to the to his friends and family members as well that is when the marriage is done. Mm-hmm. So this a, is a sort of a you can't say it's a two-day process. But some other cultures may have some other um you know some other traditions as well how they want to get married. Um so there are different things in regards yeah. to in regards to this. Yeah, that's true. Just I just want to clarify one thing. Yes. Uh, you know I just
2: uh, you know a few minutes ago I spoke about the the Quran not uh actually forcing or telling someone to stay with the parents. If they can stay with on their own, then they should do so. But the Quran never says that you should stay mm. with the parents. But there are circumstances. For example, your parents are ill, or you don't even have enough money, or you're still studying. Mm. In those circumstances, of course, you know you you stay with your parents.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean there are there are circu- I mean the, obviously there yeah. are different circumstances. The, as different well,
2: circumstances as well. But course. you know, but uh, the Quran says that. Uh, it it doesn't tell you that you should stay with the parents, or you shouldn't stay with the parents. Mm. So, uh, but I mean, there's,
0: there's no there's no there's no right or wrong. There's right no or wrong, or, yeah. or no sin. But you know, it's it's, it's like that. It's good mm-hmm. that you mentioned that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's speak to our next guest actually, who's on the line with us, Divya Shirini Shirinivasan, who is a Harvard law graduate, licensed attorney with a background in women's rights as well. Good afternoon, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining us um, on our show this uh, this afternoon. Just from the very outset, what what wh- why is sort of why is it taking so long? So uh, I don't want to seem too harsh, but how is it taking so long to sort of stop child marriages in eastern and southern African countries? Um, well, we see that a lot of problems are arising and slowly slowly the implement the implementation is actually happening as well but is there something that can be done to to do that faster
6: yeah
5: so i think it's not just in east and southern africa but globally hmm. the progress to end child marriage has not been a as expected so there has been a decline so today if you see it's one in five girls who are married before the age of 18 globally as compared to one in four 10 years ago so there's been some progress but governments across the world they set the goal that they would end child marriage by 2030 under the sustainable development goals and we know that it's not going to happen so UNICEF estimated that based on the current rates of progress, it's going to take another 300 years to end wow. child marriage across the world. Yeah. So I think that really shows that we're not going fast enough, and yeah. that's the same in East and Southern Africa. Um, so I think there are many factors for this. Um, you know, Continuing poverty and economic crises which lead to child marriage. There are also situations which have actually increased the risk of child marriage, like climate change, conflict, humanitarian crises. And the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, and then also, I think, failure by governments in the region to treat child marriage as a priority issue and allocate sufficient resources towards implementation of policies and programs to eliminate child marriage have slowed progress as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you you wrote uh, in an article uh, in October this year, and which you know which talks about which talks about different countries having different minimum ages for for marriages, for girls to, you know, if they give their consent for marriages. Now, how does this cause problems? And what needs to be done to actually tackle this and make sure that countries that have, you know, the same, if not similar, same sort of ages for, for marriage?
7: Right, so this
5: article that I wrote was based on the research that my organization, Equality Now, which is an NGO, had done, uh, along with UNFPA and the Southern African Development Community Parliamentary Forum, uh, which was looking at different minimum age of marriage laws in Southern Africa. So internationally, both international and regional human rights standards they require that the minimum age of marriage in the law should be set at 18 for both boys and girls to the same age uh, without any exceptions. Uh, but in our research, we found that the laws in only six of the 16 countries in Southern Africa actually met this standard. So in other countries, uh, there were either lower ages of marriage prescribed and often it's lower for the girls, so it's discriminatory in the sense that it's setting a lower age of marriage for girls than for boys. Um, Or that there were exceptions where children were allowed to get married if the parents gave consent or the judges gave consent. And I think this is especially problematic because often in those cases, they don't actually uh, ask about the girl's consent or even if they do, um, it's in a very uh, pressure situation where her parents are also there and she doesn't really have the freedom to say no. Uh, So there are these exceptions which allow marriages in these cases and they may also be like um, conflict in the law itself. For example, in some countries the constitution may say that child marriage under 18 is prohibited but laws which are you know applicable to specific religious communities or customary laws uh, can be exempted from this and have uh, separate rules for example some customary laws say that as soon as you reach puberty you may get married, uh, so this defeats the purpose of the law and causes a lot of problems because that means the law is failing to protect the rights of children in these communities, and you know, leaving loopholes where they can be married off uh, without their consent. Uh, so there's a really there's a need to harmonise all these laws and make sure that they follow the same standards and meet international norms. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the,
2: the Southern African Development Community. Uh, model law is uh, said to be a good thing, uh, but it needs effective implementations. So can you explain how governments can follow these uh, recommendations uh, to make a difference?
5: Sure. So the Southern African Development Community Model Law on Eradicating Child Marriage, it's basically a tool that government can use not only to harmonize uh, their laws and policies on child marriage, including on the age of marriage, like I mentioned before, but it's also the model law is a very progressive instrument because it goes beyond just you know, the legal provisions, but also think about what practical measures need to be put in place, mm-hmm. uh, which can go a long way in addressing child marriage. So, this includes, for example, prevention mechanisms, including, uh, you know, sexual and reproductive health education in schools, advocacy and awareness programs in, in areas where you know that there are hot spots for child marriage, mm-hmm. um, requiring governments to set up an anti child marriage fund so that that money can actually be used uh, both to support, uh, you know, children in marriage, but also to support prevention programs, Uh, setting up of reporting mechanisms like toll-free helplines, uh, building capacity of personnel to understand these situations and respond to child marriage. And above all, I think promoting effective implementation of laws against child marriage, including providing legal aid, access to restraining and protection orders. So it has a lot of implementation measures uh, which governments can look to uh, and actually put in place in their own countries.
2: Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, um, for answering our questions. Uh, We're at the um, end of uh, this hour, so we wish we could have asked you another question. But, uh, you know, we uh, got a lot of information from you. uh, So thank you very, very much for your answers and your time.
5: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
0: I think uh, I think a lot of the, all of our guests uh, this uh, afternoon spoke quite eloquently about you know did, about, yes. about this particular topic mm-hmm. and be, because awareness needs to be raised as well because let's mm-hmm. face it it is because of the ignorance yeah. right it's because of ignorance and lack of knowledge why these problems occur as well in the mm-hmm. first place if 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 young men young women you know boys and girls if they have information yeah right information about this that you know um they're not just brought into this and they don't know anything else mm-hmm. if they have access to information and uh, they then they can sort of make a judgment from themselves yeah if they don't then how can they then the change is just going to go on and on and on and like, uh, like like she said this can go on to end child poverty could take 300 years that's what the international uh you know these uh, people who are looking into this they predicted yeah 300 years so obviously years. you know that it's not,
2: it's <laughs> not being done fast enough. It's not it? done uh, done fast enough, and I I don't think the awareness is going everywhere, and everyone is willing yeah, to implement it as well. But uh, you know, fourteen hundred years ago, uh, when you look at the life of the Holy Prophet and the life before, hmm. right? The people were so ignorant that they. Forget about marrying off your your daughters when they are at an age of of uh, of marriage. They used to kill their daughters, yeah. right? So the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah people on him, you know, respected and you know, actually protected the, the 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 daughters being killed, and he was so furious and so strict about this, and 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 even when it came to the marriages of of um um of 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 marrying off any daughter um you know i'm just going to a fr- uh, a a power phrase hmm. a hadith or a saying of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him um you know there the, the, there was a marriage um there's someone who came to the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him and um and said that uh, actually i'm going to read it out cuz it's going to be too long uh, to, to explain actually so the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him actually said that that the match should be made according to the girl's wishes. Mm. And one of the companions, Khansa the Khidam, said, my father married me to his nephew and I did not like this match. So I complained to the Messenger of Allah. He said to me, accept what your father has arranged. And she answered that I do not wish to accept what my father has arranged. And then the Holy Prophet said, then this marriage is invalid. Go and marry whoever you wish. And then she said, "I said, "I have accepted what my father has arranged, but I wanted uh, women to know that fathers have no right in their daughter's matter mm. In other words, it means that they have no right to force a marriage on them i mean they they, they yeah. were so smart that in future <laughs> you know, for the future for ladies, if anything you know like if this, any, so like this uh, happens. W- would happen right yeah. so that wouldn't occur and the holy prophets uh, words were enough. Yeah. for you know any sort of injustice uh, to stop exactly uh, from exactly. from from the from the teachings of islam yeah
0: absolutely so that's the you know that is a very practical like you mentioned very yeah. very practical um example of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him saying stating that you know if the consent is not, if the real consent is not there then that that marriage is in, is void you know yeah. it's, it's invalid yes hopefully we sh- we talk, I mean, we try to shed some light Into this topic as well. Join us after the news as we will go on to our next topic, which is about neutrality and uh, how we can establish peaceful dialogue as well. Join us after the news. you're
3: listening to the voice of islam radio broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day
0: assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu peace and blessings of allah be upon you all welcome to or welcome back to the drive time show here on the voice of islam um, like like we mentioned before we're going to be talking about neutrality and uh, sort of how you know we can build a platform for peaceful negotiations? Um, it's important that we have these sort of topics as well because um, it gives us a, a a a common ground, right? When when what I mean by a common ground is that we can be unbiased. We we can <laughs> talk about things from both sides of the of the spectrum as well. Um, some people may agree, some people may disagree. But you know, let's face it—we can't please everyone. So let's, uh, you know, talking about talking about the the conflict which is happening, the war which is happening, the ongoing tensions which are sort of, you know, it's it's an up and down, isn't it? Because it, it has been escalating for so long now. Mm-hmm. We've seen in the middle of it, one or two days, four, or five days, um, ceasefires. Um, but then right after that, the ceasefire—you know—when the ceasefire is lifted. When there is no ceasefire, then it's just fire, isn't it right and then it's just bombardment upon bombardment, yep, and even when there is and there was a ceasefire, that doesn't mean that there was no killings going on. Oh yes, there was killing going <laughs> on um that's the thing uh so how can we how can we sort of talk about this in an unbiased way? Well the thing is is that from the very outset, I just want to say that wherever there is injustice. One hundred percent we 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 condemn that, yeah whatever, and whoever does this, whatever government does this, whatever party does this, whatever you know person does this, um whether it's done from 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 a from a Muslim nation, you know if if, if it's injustice, what they have done, yes, we condemn that mm-hmm. if it's done from Israeli or Christian or secular or whatever other nation or people or country, then yes, if it's injustice. And then we we need to condemn that as well. Yeah. And that is one thing which leaders of of you know this day and age, when it comes to big, big powers, big, big leaders, they need to make sure that they are calling out injustice wherever they see it as well. Mm-hmm. It's no good being a superpower and then, you know, keeping quiet when your friends are doing the bad things. And whenever a very, 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 very small nation, let's just say in Africa, is doing is, you know, maybe violating one law, right? Then, you know, there's sanctions upon sanctions upon that. And then they they, they become so pressed that they can't do anything. Hmm. And then they have to sort of beg for forgiveness from these bigger nations. And that is what we have been seeing. It's very unfortunate. It's, unfortunate. it's very unfortunate. Very, very that, unfortunate. I mean, when
2: uh, you just mentioned that big... Uh, nations or big powerful nations when they do anything or they, they kill millions of people, destroy the whole country, then there is no injustice happening right mm. but then when there is a small group doing something which is not according to the big nation uh, according to their law, which then you know there there's so many sanctions that go against them, but yeah, so to stay neutral means I think you know look at both parts what good and what bad that they are presenting and then avoid the bad part and then be neutral but um, uh, we will delve into this topic more in detail but let's speak to one of our um, uh, guests today Um, um, so our first guest is Wendy uh, Permal
8: Oh, hi, thank you so much. Yes, my name is Wendy Perlman.
2: Thank you, Wendy, uh, for joining <laughs> no us <problem>. today. Um, <laughs>
8: my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you very much.
8: But the work that I do, I'm a political scientist who uh, focuses on the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I've written three books about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Palestinian politics, as well as two books on uh, the Syrian uprising and war. So I'm a, a political scientist who focuses on on that region, and with a long history studying uh, Palestine for for over 20 years.
2: Mm-hmm. And and what do you think uh, of some of the people decide to remain neutral, uh, as we are speaking about uh, neutrality mm-hmm. in, in conflicts like these? What uh, challenges do individuals or organizations face when attempting to maintain a neutral stance? Um, when, you see, when we say that we're neutral, we stand for both parties. Uh, but then let's say a nation is destroying another nation, which is not powerful at all, right? And Or let's say mm-hmm. ethnically cleansing a nation because they don't want to live. They don't want them to live. So what do you think of this? Can we still be neutral in these kind of conflicts?
8: Uh, no, I don't. We should be. So, I mean, here we can think of the, the famous words by Desmond Tutu that, as he said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And in this famous quote, he says, if an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Mm. So neutrality in, in situations of enormous asymmetry of power and in situations of injustice is not the right stance. And I think that normally neutrality seems to have a good ring to it, that people think being neutral is the right thing to do. But in situations of this sort, I don't think neutrality is the right thing to do. I think there's a difference between neutrality and fairness. Neutrality is like not supporting either side, saying Mm -hmm. I'm staying out and I treat all equally. But that's not what we need in a situation when one party is enormously more powerful than the other. And there's injustice and oppression happening. Fairness is going according to the rules, is 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 upholding values and principles, and in this case, international law. So you should do what is fair, take a um, a stance that is fair and just. And in this situation, neutral is not just, I would say. Neutral is enabling oppression. Neutrality is effectively uh, allowing the larger party to continue to use their
0: power. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Wendy, in, in, your, in your research, have you observed any instances where a, where where sort of backfired. A commitment to neutrality has actually made or made hindrances when it comes to peace peace building. And uh, when conflicts were sort of happening, it sort of instead of de-escalating, that it sort of triggered something mm-hmm. something else.
8: Now, it's such an interesting question. I would say that in my own work, I haven't seen neutrality backfiring as much as there actually not being much neutrality at all. So we can see in the in, in, in I think in the history of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians that there if if countries had been neutral it probably would have been better, <laughs> but they they weren't necessarily neutral. So for example, the case of the United States, which throughout the you know the the, the Oslo negotiations process between Israel and the Palestinian uh, the the PLO and the Palestinian leadership, the US. The term you often used was that the U.S. would try to be a, quote, honest broker, Mm. that it was a a party, a third party that would help Israelis and Palestinians reach a resolution, that it was um, a broker, a mediator between the two parties. And it often seemed to try to pretend that that was a neutral stance, that it was honest, that it was a mediator, that it was a third party that did not have an interest in the conflict, but would help the others reach a resolution. And we all know, of course, that was quite false. The U.S. has a very long history of supporting Israel. It gives billions of dollars to Israel every year. It supported Israel Militarily, financially, politically, we are seeing the U.S. continue to do this in its support with Israel, especially, for example, its political support in the United Nations, hmm. vetoing resolutions or yeah. uh, that you know, and so forth. So there was a, a an air or a, a an appearance or a performance or a, a, um, a, almost a myth of trying to be neutral. Um, Um, And the international community in general has failed in this conflict. Um, United Nations has passed resolutions that are never implemented. Um, uh, Countries either don't stand with Palestine or if they do stand with Palestine, it's more in words than in deed. Um, So there's not much neutrality going on. And I think we are all seeing the results of that in this horrific uh, war against the Palestinian people right now.
0: I mean, what happened to the what happened to the League of Nations? I mean, that is sort of the same thing that we are seeing with the United Nations as well, isn't it? I mean, if this, God forbid, yeah. if this escalates, if this war escalates and it becomes, you know, it spreads out of the region and then into in sort of an international, a a an international <laughs> war, then there might not be a, a United Nations left, isn't it? Do you do you do you agree with that?
8: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't actually see it it going that that far. Um, uh, it, I think it's it it is my own prediction is that well, this will probably stay and remain contained um, in Israel and Palestine. But the damage it is doing to to Palestinians, the absolute decimation of Gaza, the killing of of some twenty thousand plus people at this time, the fact that the the country or the Palestinians in Gaza are starving and disease is spreading and people are still under the rubble. For me, it does not have to go to any more regional or international war mm. for it to be an absolute horrific stain on the 21st century. And um, it, it doesn't need to go beyond these borders to be uh, the, the largest catastrophe. My words fail to describe how horrific this situation is. Mm. Um that is also already more than enough that should demand the attention of the world to demand of course an immediate ceasefire and um and and add to this this this
0: uh this brutality. I mean that is that is what we want to see. That is what we want to see anyway. Yeah. And hopefully like you said we don't it doesn't have to, you know, go out of his borders for it for for people to, for the nations to come and deny it. We shouldn't be denying it right now. But what do you think about the role then? The the role of international communities, um, you know, NGOs, all of these, uh, you know, charitable organizations and various other organizations as well, especially the United Nations also. If they have laws, if they have international laws, but then you have nations which can sort of say, turn around and say, no, we don't want to follow your laws. We want to follow our own laws and... What you think is right, we think that's wrong. So we're part of the United Nations, but we're not part of it because we don't wanna we don't wanna listen to you, we can veto you. How much do they have a say then? How much do they how much of an influence can they can they put into these nations then? To to, to, to yes. say enough I, is enough?
8: Yeah, and I think very little. I, I think that the crises like this expose the the um the horrible limits of, of the United Nations and any sort of mechanisms that we have to try to bring about global peace. That the United Nations, I think, in a world in which nation states um, uh, treasure their own uh, sovereignty and interests trump values in international law essentially states just do whatever they want and these very weak mechanisms to get people to states to um to coordinate to to uh, to put law first are just extremely weak and in the united nations the um the security council and the, and the fact that five permanent members have this power to, to veto um, and then, the, for example, in just last week's uh, deliberations on um, a resolution for an immediate ceasefire, that the United States was able to veto this and basically stand up into the world and say, we don't want ceasefire, we want war. We don't want an end to violence, we want the continuation of violence. Mm. And the structure of the United Nations allows that to happen, a single yeah. state to stand up and say. We want to enable further killing. We are against the stopping of killing. It shows the failure of the entire institution. And thank you for mentioning the League of Nations. We can remember that the United Nations is this inheritor of an institution, for example, that, hmm. that carved up the Middle East into colonies in the first place. That's part of the, the whole um, legacy of colonialism and some of the roots of this very conflict that we see continuing to, um, to go without resolution in Israel and Palestine. Yeah.
0: Well, Wendy, it's been been splendid speaking to you this this afternoon and getting your take on this as well. And I'm sure that, you know, it was very interesting speaking to you and I'm sure that the listeners must have benefited from that as well. Thank you. Thank you so much and have a lovely day. Thank
8: you so much for having me. You too. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. I mean, I I would like to ask some other questions as well, but we've got a lineup of other guests that we want to get through as well. Um, but very interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah. Speaking speaking to Wendy there as well, and quite uh, that's the thing, isn't it? How can we how can we stay, um, you know, balanced in this sort of talk <laughs> as well, isn't it? When in on one side there's so much atrocities going on, and on the other side they're just taking it on the chin, isn't it? Yeah, um, I mean uh, the,
2: the, the, there were examples as well during yeah. the World War. There, there were countries who who stayed neutral, for example, Sweden. Switzerland, Spain, uh, Portugal, the island, Turkey—they they stayed neutral and they didn't want to get involved in the war. And uh, I think some of the countries they you know they the, they still got uh, mm. affected, uh, but uh, you know they did their part of not getting involved in the war, which is a good part, which is a good thing to do. That you don't want people to die. You just want to be neutral. You don't want to get involved in the war. And if m- many of the countries or many big powers they understood this that in any uh, should, the, the best thing is to avoid any sort of war because yeah. that includes the killing of innocent people
0: of course i mean the best thing is to avoid any any sort of conflict or war yeah. as well isn't it because at the end of the day it's human lives which are at risk isn't it exactly let's uh, let's continue this topic as well with um, with, uh, with our next guest nibal who is palestinian red C- red crescent uh, spokesperson peace be upon you good afternoon and welcome to the show
7: Hi, good evening. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Can you provide an, a sort of an outline of the Palestine Red Crescent Society's mission and uh, and the work it does in, in the region as well?
7: The Palestine Red Crescent is the lead emergency medical service provider in the occupied Palestinian territory. So since the beginning of the escalation in Gaza, our teams are working tirelessly trying to save people's lives. We um, evacuate the wounded and casualties and transfer them to the hospitals via our ambulances. We also managed to uh, receive the humanitarian aid through Rafah Crossing border in coordination with our partners, the Egyptian Red Crescent, and we manage also to distribute some of the aid that comes directly to the Palestine Red Crescent. We distribute it to uh, families who are in need. For food, relief items as well, hmm. and also we distributed to our uh, facilities and those who are taken shelter inside um, our facilities from uh, the, civil- the civilians that currently are in the Palestinian Crescent uh, facilities. We also um, uh, provide uh, several uh, psychosocial support services for the kids who are traumatized due to this continuous uh, escalation. Um, so this is basically some of the humanitarian services uh, our team's uh, on the ground trying to uh, provide for Palestinians in Gaza, trying as much to alleviate their suffering.
0: Mm-hmm. Talking about um, the, the 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 medical assistance as well, I want to ask uh, that to you as well. That can you share some, some examples of the medical assistance and services um, which uh, which have been actually affected due to the conflict. And uh, has there been any instances where healthcare workers, actually, they themselves face any significant uh, challenges carrying out their duties?
7: Uh, absolutely. The first standard question from two hospitals uh, in Gaza. Strip. One is Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City, and the second one is Al-Aman Hospital in Khan Unfortunately, our hospital, Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City, had shut down due to the continuous Israeli attacks on the hospital. The hospital was under intense shelling and bombardment day and night. It was besieged for over ten days. Um, Israeli occupation forces denied uh, access of humanitarian aid as well as medical supplies and medicine to the hospital besides the fuel. So we have run out of the fuel and the hospital was for weeks with no power, with no electricity, with uh, no even, very shortage of medical supplies and medicine, to the extent that um, the last days inside the hospital, there was even no food and water for the wounded, the patients, as well as the medical staff. So unfortunately, we had to evacuate the hospital and all the wounded, as well as the medical staff, to south uh, of Gaza. The situation for al-Quds hospital is exactly the situation for all other hospitals that were operating in gaza city and the north unfortunately now there is no medical services in the area of gaza city and the north all hospitals went completely out of service and even at the previous days we unfortunately announced that our emergency medical service in north of gaza had stopped operating because of a fuel depletion. All of our ambulances were uh, stopped. And as you know, even the area of Gaza City and the north has been completely denied access to any humanitarian aid. So the situation in all Gaza is, like, beyond catastrophic, particularly the, the area of Gaza City. And the north not only denied access of... Uh, food and water, also civilians are denied access to medical service. We tried our best to continue providing our services even in the area of north of Gaza. We had uh, established um, a medical point in Jabalia which provides medical services to the people. And like at least we deal with around 250 cases a day. Uh, uh, however, this is absolutely not enough. We're talking about 800,000 civilians are still in Gaza City and the north, and all of them now are denied access of medical services and even ambulances. We're getting dozens of phone calls uh, every day from desperate people who are in urgent need for ambulances to evacuate them. There's trapped families, most of them elderly people and patients. They are trapped in their homes, and there is israeli tanks that surrounding the area which is extremely dangerous and there's no way for them to go out of their homes or evacuate themselves they are with no food and no water for days and the only thing they need is just any humanitarian agency to help them go out of their homes unfortunately even us we feel helpless because we don't even enjoy safe uh, access and those military areas are completely dangerous where um, Israeli occupation forces like targeted anyone who tried to move in these uh, areas. Unfortunately, there's uh, dozens of people who are killed, others uh, who are injured in those areas and no one is able to reach out to them.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we want your voice to be heard. So for the listeners and maybe they can relay this and your stories and your organization as well to others as well, uh, how can individuals uh, and the international community uh, contribute to support the Palestine Red Crescent Society's mission?
7: First, we call on the international community to intervene immediately to ensure protection of our medical teams, hospitals, as well as all healthcare workers and the humanitarian in Gaza. We need this safe access so we can continue providing our life-saving services to the people who are in urgent need. Of Healthcare workers uh, should be protected under international humanitarian law. Unfortunately, this is not the case in Gaza. We are being targeted and we should not be uh, a target because we also call on the international community to pressure Israel to allow the entry of more humanitarian aid what has entered it does since the beginning of the escalation it doesn't even scratching the surface uh, it doesn't meet 10 percent of the needs now all the population in gaza over 2 million civilians are lacking food uh, water and medicine as well people are uh, witnessing hunger we, we were seeing hunger uh, already and on top of that um, over of the population have been internally displaced in various um, shelters or even hospitals or even in their uh, family members' homes in south of Gaza. So the situation um, is dire, and all of those civilians are in urgent need for very basic necessities. Uh, On top of that, um, for sure, safety, because civilians are... uh, just paying the cost of this uh, escalation. Over 70% of those thousands who were killed since the beginning of the escalation are children and women. And thousands as well uh, are injured. On top of that, uh, those who are injured, many of them are in critical conditions where the medical teams in Gaza can't even treat them because already all hospitals that still operating are already overwhelmed and they can't um, even deal with this alarming number uh, of injuries so we call on uh, those uh, people it's it's critically important it's very important to evacuate those who are critically injured to be treated outside uh, of gaza Mm -hmm. as well as to allow the entry of enough medical supplies and medicine as well as if you inside uh, Gaza to support the work uh, of hospitals as well as ambulances.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much and may Allah bless you uh, for the works that you're doing and and I pray, we both pray, we all pray that uh, may uh, uh, God Almighty support you and help you and protect you throughout your whole work. But This is an amazing work that you're doing. Uh, Thank you very much for, for answering our questions as well and giving us time. Thank you. Thank you. So this was um um uh, uh, our guest who spoke about uh, Nibal, who who spoke about the Palestinian Red Crescent um, um and their activities uh, thank you for for her joining us today and um I would uh, like to uh, introduce and welcome uh, Dr Majid Shihad as well uh, Dr Majid Shihad he is a um, a PhD um is an uh, interdisciplinary scholar his research and publication focus on settler colon- uh, colonial and indigenous studies uh, deco- deco- decolonial thought uh, in ibn khaldun and social cultural political transformations in palestine especially in the rural areas uh, with this intro i would like to welcome um dr majid Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show.
9: Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Majid, for joining us today. Um, uh, could you give us an overview uh, and uh, an introduction to the work that you do? Well,
9: basically, my work focuses on um, secular colonial studies, which for a very long time has not included Israel as a settler colony. Mm -hmm. And and that was very important to push it within the academic circles, uh, to open space for publications, to speak much more in academia about the nature of the Israeli state as a settler colony. And settler colonies are not democratic states. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Two, on decolonial thought in the sense of, and also indigenous studies, to think of... um, uh thought that comes from indigenous scholars and indigenous people in case in the case of palestine uh, by palestinian people and uh, rather than continue to rely on israeli and western scholarship uh, decolonial thought is a global movement that tries to recenter or decenter knowledge uh, away from uh, eurocentric approaches uh, in the academia,
2: mm-hmm. and how and does part of that?
9: Yeah. part of that is in, in part, uh, uh, is my interest in Ibn Khaldun, which is I think you know one of the most genius scholars in history, that covers so many fields in the academia today, from politics to sociology to anthropology to education to psychology to any almost any field that we have in the academia, and in first line I try to focus. On the rural, you know, the village, uh, um, villages in Palestine, especially in Galilee, but because mainly uh, to disrupt this kind of dichotomy between the city and the village, mm-hmm. which I rely on, and two, uh, because there is a lot of focus in Palestine studies on cities, as if the cities exist on their own without the connection their connection to the village and the villagers. And uh, that's very important, I think, because this is also a European-Western dichotomy between the village and the city, as if these two spaces are completely disconnected. And in the case of Palestine, villages are like minutes from cities. And most of the cities are villagers who live in the cities.
2: Hmm. Uh, People might also think that religion has a... Uh, a role to play in this conflict. So, how do you approach? Uh, and 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 what what extent does religion play uh, in in shaping the narratives of the involved parties?
9: I think religion was used. You know, like uh, it's often used, uh, but especially in in uh, since the modern period uh, when the Europeans rose to. Um, power and became hegemony in in the global politics. They used the Bible that was based in the Old Testament, uh, which is uh, largely Jewish texts that uh, justified slavery, racism, colonization, and settler colonial uh, structures, like uh, what we call today the U.S., America, Canada, uh, Australia, and here in the case of Palestine, what we call Israel. So religion is used, definitely. But it's not uh, something in isolation, it's something more. I think, you know, if we think about, if you are asking me about Palestine, I think religion is used. But before, in addition to religion, or uh, more importantly, I think Israel was created, as I wrote in uh, The Place of Israel in Asia, uh, and this is uh, based on statements by Israeli, Zionist leaders before 48 and statements by Western leaders. And this, these statements were very blunt at the time because colonialism was kind of not a negative word uh, mm-hmm. or not uh, a word that's uh, something people were shy of using it. So uh, it was said and stated that uh, we need to create Israel as a front of the West against the East.
2: Mm-hmm.
9: They didn't talk about Islam. Uh, And and Judaism and Christianity, it was a West, you know, that influenced religion, of course, but the West as a kind of, what became known uh, over time, kind of Western civilization, in quotation marks. Uh There are books about it, about, you know, how European identity was formed, uh, and this is by the European scholars. Right. Uh, uh, in In opposition to what they opposed, and who they opposed first and most, was the people next to them in Africa and in Asia? So uh, for them, the main kind of counterpart in, in their identity is the Arab, is the Muslim, is the Asian, is the African, and uh, so. And it's uh, religion is part of that, but it's not the main point.
0: Hmm. Interesting, very interesting. I mean, you're, you're an ac- academic, so in terms of the, the the intricacies, you will know about that more as well but because you're an academic how do you approach the study of the of the conflict in in palestine and uh, uh, with that what you can sort of get into the, the 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 unique insights as well you would have access to that how can that be be sort of uh, how can that come out how can we as the layman who who are not academics in in this field as well what are some yeah. of the things that we can learn from from your research
9: Yeah. Well, I approach it. I mean, I taught in the US also, and I created, it was, I think, the first class in in the US Academy uh, that uh, studied Palestine as a settler colonial uh, project in a comparative uh, study, comparing uh, Israel to the US, Canada and Australia. And there are texts that work on that, you know, texts that compare similar, not only similar structures, but also how theory of settler colonialism travels and uses religion in the sense of kind of uh, um, the holy land, the chosen people, the promised land, and and so on and so forth. So what I see now, and what's happening in Gaza, and also in the West Bank, by the way, but Gaza in a much more kind of acute and really horrible way, it's uh, uh, another stage of the expansion of settler colonial, of the Israeli settler colonial project that tries to eliminate Uh, as many uh, Palestinians as possible, and to take over more uh, space. Hmm. And that's how settler colonialism works. You take a break, and then you expand, and you kill, and you try to eliminate, you try to rupture the lives of people in any way you can. So that's how I see it now. But in addition to what, you know, the Israeli project doesn't work on its own, alone, because it's a European Western project, so it works also with the interest of NATO and the U.S. that have failed to stop Russia in Ukraine. Uh, this, way, this way they um, uh, try to kind of um, take uh, attention away from their failure or defeat so far against Russia to become kind of prominent in global politics uh, through this war in, in, uh, in Palestine. Uh, the Americans are behind it completely, so are the British and other European countries. Uh, and another also goal for the US and NATO is to stop this kind of linkage of China uh, through the Gulf and the region. And we what we see a lot of like countries that were super uh, kind of committed to the US, like UAE, Saudi Arabia, and so on, that are making much more connection to India, to China and to Russia in opposition uh, uh, to the demands of the U.S. to distance themselves from both these kind of global powers. One, Russia is a military global power, and China, in addition to military power, is much more kind of economic global power. Mm -hmm. So the war is Israeli settler colonial expansion, and uh, they will keep doing it, uh, uh, whether it was Hamas or not, that is an excuse because they did it in '48, they did it in '56, they did it in '67, and they continue to do that. There was no Hamas at the time, mm. so the excuse that Hamas is the reason, it's just an excuse because they did it before that when there was no Hamas, and even before '48 when the Palestinian leadership went to Britain to the British Parliament and asked them for one state for all people. We live in Palestine at the time, with one person, one vote. The British responded by uh, promoting the partition plan, which gave the Jewish Zionists uh, much more of the land and much more kind of strategic uh, areas of Palestine, the ports, the green areas, and so on and so forth. Knowingly that Palestinians were not accepted, and the admitted leaders in the British government at the time, they said, stated that. We know that the Palestinians will not accept that, so they promoted a project that the Palestinians will not accept, so that they could generate a war that will create Israel as a starting point of uh, dominating the region.
0: Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Very interesting as well. I mean, like you said, it, it, Hamas is just, uh, it's just an excuse as well. I mean, this has been going on for so long now. Um, of course. When, when will it stop? As all. Well? Um, i'm afraid we you know we wanted to ask you maybe one or two more questions as well but we're a little bit uh, short of uh, short of time but maybe in some other time in the future in a future show we will we will get you back we will love to get you back and get your insight uh, sure. uh, as well but for now thank you so much for joining us and uh, have a lovely day thank you once again
9: you too thank you
0: thank you so that was uh, Majid Shihadi, who's uh, you know spoke, who, who's an academic who spoke a little, spoke about this as well, who has uh, quite detailed analysis in regards to the situation, what's happening, what's happened, and uh, you know talks of it uh, possibly, hopefully deescalate because that is something that we want to see, isn't it? Yeah, we want to see it deescalate to to the fact that there is no more war. Yeah, as well as, because neutrality, which is what we're talking about right now. Is the legal state when a country refrains from any sort of involvement in wars yeah. um, between between other nations, mm-hmm. and remains impartial towards those at war, and gains recognition for this stance as well. Yeah, um, you know, for the United for the United Nations to operate independently and effectively, especially in political you know political situations such as this one, maintaining. And earning the confidence and cooperation of all parties is actually crucial. Yeah. But that's the thing. When when nations have this uh, ability to say, you know, no, we're not going to listen to you. Yeah. Then what do you do then? If exactly. the credibility is there, if everything is there, but, you know, the nations have this power to say, to veto whatever bill that they pass, mm-hmm. that puts us put that puts the whole world into a difficult situation true and that is something which uh which you know the all of these organizations they need to realize for themselves and i'm sure that they would have realized that what's the point of them then what is the point of these you know of the of these uh of these of these uh, international laws this is and no point y-
2: if you can't protect uh, innocent people
0: literally yeah, I mean, the whole point is to protect the innocent, isn't it? Yeah. The whole point is to make sure that there is justice and justice is upheld. But if there is no justice, if there is injustice within the political systems, hmm. then, you know, how can you expect there to be no war? Of course, there's going to be conflicts. And when conflicts are not resolved, you know, not just one or two years, but for decades, this has been going on for decades now. Hmm. It hasn't been resolved. And because it hasn't been resolved, the whole world is a, you know, is a, you know, is a, I mean, especially especially that particular part of the world, but you know, God forbid, it spreads outwards and it goes to other nations, spreads to other nations. Yeah, it it could can be quite detrimental. Mm-hmm. This is why we need these nations to actually speak up, mm-hmm. and for them to actually, you know, put their put their foot in, mm-hmm. and you know, make sure that the that the other nations are pulling their socks up, isn't it? Exactly. That is something that we need to we need to make sure and urge our politicians or our, you know, MPs and all these people who have, who do have influence, who do have a voice in Parliament mm-hmm. to do their bit as well. We spoke to uh, another guest uh, earlier on, Juan Cole, and, uh, you, know, uh, which, 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 you know, which was quite interesting, that interview as well. But uh, for the benefit of our listeners, let's, let's just play that for you guys as well now.
6: In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Peace be upon you all and welcome to the pre-recording for the Tuesday drive time show. I, Saad Ahmed, I'm here with Juan R.I. Cole, um, who is a Richard P. Mitchell's College Gate Professor of History at the University of Michigan and the Director of the Arab and Muslim American Studies Program in the American Cultural Department. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. How are you today?
4: assalam Thanks for having me in.
6: Thank you so much. So, um, Juan, if I can, may I ask you? Can you could you provide our listeners a overview or introduction of the work you do?
4: Well, I uh, my position is I'm uh, the Middle East historian at the University of Michigan. Uh, and, um, I've written about a a wide range of things. Uh, I, uh, um, I've written about, uh, much of the Middle East, uh, several works on Egypt, for instance. And, um, uh, also I've had an interest in Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, uh, and, uh, my first book ended up being about South Asia because I had been planning to do some research in Iran and the Iranian Revolution of 1979 interfered Uh, and so I found similar materials to the ones that I had hoped to examine in Iran in in, of all places Lucknow in in India Uh, and so I spent some time in uh, in India and and Pakistan doing research on uh, history of North India Uh, so um, uh, I was trained however as as an undergraduate uh, in religion and uh, my PhD is technically in Islamic studies. And uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, I studied both early Islam and modern uh, history. Uh, and so in recent years, I've gone back to my uh, graduate student interests and I've uh, been writing uh, some works about early Islam. I wrote a biography of the prophet Muhammad uh, in 2018 And um, I did an edited book on uh, peace movements in Islam, uh, and I've been writing some journal articles about the historical context that I argue shaped uh, the reception of the Qur'an.
6: Mashallah. That's really good. Um, The immense work you've been doing, and especially you have visited... um my home country also, which I haven't visited myself, Pakistan, because I was born in the Europe, in Europe, I've never had the chance to go back there. So it's really good to hear from you on that you have visited um, that very um, country where where my parents are from. But um, my second question to you today is, um, I wanted to ask you, so how would you, um, for example, define the concept of neutrality in the context of international relations, and how it applies the conflict which is happening right now in specifically in Palestine
4: well ne- neutrality uh, as a term in international law typically has to do with a stance a country takes uh, during a um a war between other countries so famously Switzerland uh typically has declared itself neutral in the uh in the modern Wars uh, right. and um in some countries you know changed their position over time on neutrality for instance in World War I uh, the Ottoman Empire joined with Austria and Germany uh, against uh, the, uh, the British uh, the Russians and the French mm-hmm. but that went very badly for the Ottomans they lost and they lost territory out of out of that uh, maelstrom modern Turkey emerged and so during World War II uh, the Turkish government adopted a stance of neutrality uh, so uh, it's it's um, uh, 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 declining to join in with
6: either side of the belligerents. So this thing's evolving over time, um, the neutrality, depending on the context, if they are in preference of it or if they're against something. What would you say about that?
4: Well, typically with neutrality, as, as it's been practiced uh, diplomatically, It's not really a declaration of principles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, for instance, a country might be neutral uh, uh, politically uh, between two belligerents, but it may, you know, the diplomats and the people of the country may privately uh, disapprove of one of the the belligerents. Uh, Neutrality would be simply uh, uh, declining to get directly involved and declining to boycott either side. So we can see this with the Ukraine war, uh, where um, uh, the Biden administration in the United States has pressured European countries to boycott Russia. And most of them have agreed to the extent that they're able to. Uh, But uh, virtually none of the countries in the Global South, including in the Middle East, even if they are close partners of the United States has agreed to boycott Russia. So Turkey won't do it even though it's in NATO Egypt Israel Saudi Arabia none of them have joined this boycott uh, and to a large extent the Middle Eastern countries have declared themselves uh, neutral uh in the uh, Russia Ukraine conflict they haven't taken a strong side
6: yes so um Juan, if we just um take narrative of the media in today's society so um, while reporting um the conflicts which um, which are happening throughout uh, at, at this moment how can such an organization maintain neutrality and what challenges do the journalists especially face while providing a balanced coverage of such a complex issue
4: well of course uh, journalistic uh, neutrality is quite a different thing from diplomatic neutrality uh and um uh I, th- I think you know historians journalists and others who write about uh, current affairs uh, face difficulties in uh, remaining completely neutral. Everybody is from somewhere, has been shaped by some background that they have, some experiences, education, points of view. And uh, and so um, it's famously said that uh, the physics of uh, of uh, Russia and the United States have been the same all along. But if you read the historian's uh in russia and the united states they often have differed on, on their perspective on events uh, so uh, there is a subjective element to these um, endeavors which a good historian or a good journalist will try to work against uh, and will be aware of their biases and will uh, uh, use various techniques to attempt to balance things out um, but they don't always succeed and and of course some of them don't try very hard um and then there are you know it's a it's a very difficult uh, matter when there are differing points of view on an issue uh to to report it um uh, uh the, the, there are, there are some things about the way journalism works that favor one side or another mm-hmm. uh, and this has been recognized by students of journalism there's a columbia journalism review which writes articles about how journalism uh, sometimes fails in the quest for neutrality um but you know in american journalism uh you 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 typically lead with the most important thing in the story and it's a, called a pyramid form of journalism where you put the most important thing first the second most important thing second and then you only give background at the very end. So I would argue that the pyramid form of journalism, which is not uh, is not practiced by mm-hmm. uh, all journalists everywhere. I mean, it's, a, it's particularly an American phenomenon. Uh, and often uh, the, the French do it differently. But uh, the way that it works in the United States favors power, uh, because for instance, if the president says something, then that's the most important thing in the article. He's the president. He's the most powerful man in the world, the American president. So that goes first. But it means that you're going to give primacy uh, to the point of view of the president. Uh, And for instance, during the Iraq war, the Bush administration used this uh, principle. They knew that that's how journalism works. And so if anything happened, they would immediately have the president uh pronounce on it so you know when the scandal broke of the Americans keeping Iraqi prisoners uh, in Iraq and at Abu Ghraib and uh, um, making them naked or or, mm-hmm. or torturing them uh, that broke on a Thursday evening and President Bush immediately came out and denounced uh these practices said that these were rogue practices by, lower level uh, soldiers. So the the headlines on Friday morning were, President Bush denounces torture at Abu Ghraib. So the story wasn't any longer the American torture at Abu Ghraib, it was the president's denunciation of it, which puts a different light on the subject uh, than otherwise would have been there. So I think in the current uh, crisis uh, in the Middle East, um, because uh, Israel is a country, Uh, and uh, moreover uh, an ally or partner of uh, most uh, uh, North American and European governments, uh, the pronouncements of the Israeli government are given primacy in this pyramid journalism. So um, if the Israelis announce that they have advised the people of Gaza to go to safe zones, uh, and then they have heavily bombed Gaza, The the Western journalism will lead with the announcement of safe zones, which will, you know, put a certain perspective on the entire reporting uh, uh, that, uh, well, the Israelis did their best to keep people safe. Uh, And they may not go on to note that the Israelis disregarded their own safe zones, bomb places that they promised would be safe and and so forth. Uh, So, I think, uh, you know, sometimes with the best of intentions, uh, journalists end up falling for the narrative of one side or another in these two-sided conflicts, uh, uh, even just because of the forms of journalism that they practice.
6: Interesting. Yes, so we can just hope and pray, you know, for the betterment of of that region, especially for the Palestinians who are you know, facing quite a lot of difficulties at this very moment. Thank you so much, one, for joining us today, and it was a pleasure speaking to you. And hopefully, our listeners have gained some more knowledge, some better uh, understanding of what is neutrality. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you to to uh, Saad, our brother over there, who 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 is part of the Tuesday show as well, only he conducted this interview. So thank you to him, and of course, thank you to to our guests, all of them who took time out and spoke to us today as well. Um. Just to end the show, because we're coming towards the end of the show, we must conclude this as well, this part of the topic. I mean, this is a topic which we will talk about in the future. We have spoken about this in the past. Uh, Because it's an ongoing thing, it's uh, it's an ongoing conflict which is happening. Until this conflict stops, until this war stops, we will continue to talk about these topics. Because we want to raise awareness. We want to talk about it. We want there to be... We want. We, we want to call out injustice, injustice wherever we see it, mm-hmm. and that is something which uh, which bigger, bigger nations, big, big nations, Western nations, powerful nations need to do as well. Not just to win their votes, not just oh, when when it suits them, then call out injustice, and when it doesn't suit, them, then then staying quiet. Yeah, I mean, a lot of politicians do that to win their seats, to win, to you know, to to, to win the votes. Mm. We need to be brave. We need to, if there is something bad happening call out bad you know try to stop it with your hands mm. if not at least say it with your with your tongue if not at least think it's bad in your heart yeah with that thank you so much for tuning in until next time assalamu alaikum thank you to all of our guests producers researchers assalamu alaikum peace be upon you